presenting this month's special series, Focus on Allergy. Allergy season is in full swing. From asthma to food allergies, ReachMD is keeping you up to date with the latest in allergy medicine. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Hot Topics in Allergy, presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Your host is Dr. Todd A. Marr, Director of Pediatric Allergy Immunology at Gunderson Lutheran Medical Center in La Crosse, Wisconsin. A toddler presents to you with recurrent wheezing. What could be the cause? Joining us to discuss evaluation of infants and children with refractory lower respiratory symptoms is Dr. Bradley Chips, Medical Director of Respiratory Therapy and the Cystic Fibrosis Center at Sutter Medical Center in Sacramento, California. Welcome, Dr. Chips. Thank you. One of the things I think before we actually get into talking about the evaluation would be to let everybody be aware of the Modified Asthma Predictive Index. It's talked about, and I think a lot of people hear about the API or Asthma Predictive Index, but let's refresh everybody's memory if you would. What is the API? Well, it was first developed from the Tucson Children's Respiratory Study, where major and minor criteria were used in order to identify patients who were at high risk to have persistent wheezing. Now, this was a selected group of patients having had more than three wheezing episodes previously. If they had one major criteria, parent having asthma or the child having eczema, or two of the minor criteria, wheezing other than with colds, having allergic rhinitis, or having a peripheral eosinophilia, they had a very high chance, that is greater than a three-quarters chance of having persistent wheezing. If the index was negative, they had more than a 70% chance of, quote, outgrowing their asthma. The Children's Asthma Research and Education Network, or the CARE Network, has modified this by adding as a major criteria sensitivity to an error allergen, or as a minor criteria, the sensitivity to milk, egg, or peanut. So I tend to look at it as this is kind of a crystal ball for us taking care of toddlers, that we can answer those questions the parents come in and say, well, how much wheezing should I put up with? And what you're saying is three or more episodes in a year? That would then allow you to apply this index to a particular patient in order to give the parent some idea of what the future holds. It also gives us then a better basis for understanding when asthma is more likely to be the diagnosis and also I think describes a group of patients, that is those that have a positive API, who are seriously in need of regular controller therapy on the long term. As opposed to a patient who has a negative asthma predictive index, one could more seriously consider therapy during the viral season because for the vast majority of those patients, viral induced wheezing is the major precipitant for their symptoms. So what's the differential then for infants and children with these lower respiratory symptoms if they don't have a positive API? Well, we have to begin again to categorize our thoughts between the younger infant and then older toddler age range. But as we look at the younger infant, we have to begin and always to think about structural airway lesions. Clearly, the most common is bronchomalacia, tracheomalacia, where this low-pitched, harsh monophasic wheeze is heard, usually on both inspiration and expiration. You can often hear it across the room. And one of the important keys is that it goes away almost completely when the child is asleep or very quiet. Obviously, less changes in pleural pressure, 
less turbulent airflow. Of course, there's very little effect with uh, inhaled bronchodilator or airway stabilizer. These illnesses do get worse with viral infections because upper airway resistance increases, and, of course, pleural pressure swings also increase at that time. So often people get lulled into the notion, well, it gets worse every time the patient gets a cold. It must be asthma. Obviously, that is something we need to recognize may be a concomitant feature of bronchomalacia. Rarely, we have other structural lesions in the lower airway. A vascular ring may present, again, with very low-pitched wheezing, rumbling, rattly chest, often increases with feeding. It is something that, of course, is refractory to therapy with either bronchodilator or airway stabilizer. We have to, to make the diagnosis. It can be suggested with the barium swallow and, of course, confirmed either with a bronchoscopy or an MRA of the chest showing the abnormal great vessels. Then, of course, there are very rare parenchymal structural congenital changes that are rarely encountered or have to be discovered by radiographic techniques using CT scanning or the like. Gastroesophageal reflux, of course, occurs in every child. It is a normal developmental process and can often, when asthma is a concern, true asthma can complicate and make the course of asthma more protracted and again, as a diagnosis, of course, made primarily with pH probe and or endoscopy with the very inconclusive increase in the lipid-laden macrophage index. So you've mentioned bronchiomalacia, tracheomalacia, GERD. What about foreign bodies? How common is that something that we should be thinking about? It is, and again, the vast majority of foreign bodies occur in children less than four years of age. can lead to over 3,500 deaths a year in the United States, the problem is that more than half of these are not associated with a clear historical event that one can point to and say, whoa, this is something bad happened here, and now symptoms have emerged since then. You have to have a high index of suspicion. Often, of course, they're not radiographically opaque, so you don't see them on a plain chest X-ray, and it's a diagnosis made at endoscopy, at bronchoscopy. Cystic fibrosis, the landscape is dramatically changing now. At the end of next year, Every state finally will be doing newborn screening for cystic fibrosis. So the majority of patients, at least in this age range, will be identified in the immediate neonatal period. But still, we have to understand there are children out there, especially in states where newborn screening has not been done, that will present with protracted cough, right upper lobe atelectasis, of course, poor weight gain, recurrent lower respiratory symptoms. And when there's any question that cystic fibrosis may be a concern, a sweat test should be done to confirm that. Even if newborn screening has been done, there are still obviously 3 to 5% of patients who are not going to be picked up by newborn screening, and so we shouldn't put out of our mind the notion of sweat testing being important in patients where another diagnosis is not obvious. So sweat testing would be the ultimate gold standard for making that diagnosis? Yes, and we understand that there are at least 1,400 novel mutations of the CFTR protein, probably thousands more we have no idea about. The vast majority are Delta F508, which is at least 70% of a Caucasian North American population. Most states screen between 30 and 45 mutations, so clearly there are going to be some patients who could potentially be missed with IRT being followed by genetic testing. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Hot Topics in Allergy on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, 
Dr. Todd Marr, and joining me to discuss evaluation of infants and children with refractory lower respiratory symptoms is Dr. Bradley Chips, Medical Director of Respiratory Therapy and the Cystic Fibrosis Center at Sutter Medical Center in Sacramento, California. Dr. Chipson, how often should bronchoscopy be done, and what's the value of bronchoscopy in the workup of an infant with lower respiratory symptoms? Well, bronchoscopy in my practice is done when patients have recurrent lower respiratory symptoms that don't respond to the usual intervention strategies, such as inhaled corticosteroid, possibly the addition of a leukotriene receptor antagonist, the use of inhaled beta agonist with or without anticholinergic, especially in patients who've required two or more courses of oral steroid for refractory lower airway symptoms when response to therapy is equivocal, when patients have persistent abnormalities on a chest radiograph that doesn't clear, then one needs to think about bronchoscopy as an important diagnostic tool. It also comes to the top of the list quicker in patients who have persistent cough as their major symptom, absent wheeze. When one looks at that group of patients presenting with cough, especially in patients less than 24 months of age and in a higher group of patients less than 12 months of age, a diagnosis that can only be predictably and reliably made endoscopically is persistent bacterial bronchitis. And in several series, especially the merchant paper from Dr. Ann Chang's group in Australia, 40% of children who had refractory cough, who had been admitted to hospital on average of one and a half, two times per year, who were taking moderate to high dose of inhaled steroid, 40% of those patients had lower airway infection that was documented with a positive culture, strep pneumonia, moxarella cateralis, homophilus influenza, significant neutrophilia, suggesting this was not just a commensal organism, but truly infection, and response with amelioration of symptoms almost completely with three weeks of appropriate therapy, usually, again, using amoxicillin with potassium clavulate in the high-dose 90 milligram per kilogram per day dosing strategy. Were these children different with their cough in any way? Did they have a different type of cough that could clue us in? This was a deep, wet cough appeared to be associated with increased lower airway secretions. But it's important to understand that in this group of patients, very few had asthma, very few had gastroesophageal reflux. Seventy-plus percent of this group was defined as either a patient with persistent bacterial bronchitis or one who was just going to normally resolve, albeit protracted, their symptoms without specific therapy. This is in contradistinction to patients who primarily present with wheezing lower percentage of these patients, 20-25%, are going to have the diagnosis of persistent bacterial bronchitis. Having said that, I think, though, it is perfectly rational to discuss this as a differential diagnosis with parents to offer a three-week course of appropriate antibiotic therapy that makes the symptoms completely go away. You hit a home run, there's nothing else you need to do. If it doesn't, or if the symptoms relapse quickly, then bronchoscopy surely is indicated. You had mentioned inhaled steroids. Are there different factors associated with response to inhaled steroids in children in this age group that we're talking about? Very much so. And if we think back to the very first part of this interview where we talked about the positive asthma predictive index, those patients who have early exposure and early sensitization to indoor allergens, house dust mite, dog or cat, 
have a much higher chance of a classic phenotypic expression of asthma, which is usually associated with an eosinophilic airway infiltrate. Those patients tend to respond more appropriately and at a lower dose of inhaled corticosteroid. And then if that particular pathophysiologic phenomenon is not present, then often there is going to be a very, very poor response to inhaled steroid. You're then talking about younger children, especially males. Although they have large lungs, have smaller conducting airways, they have thicker airways, they don't respond to bronchodilator, and this is one of the reasons we think this so-called dyssynaptic lung growth, that younger males have a higher instance of wheezing and increased respiratory symptoms. Again, as patients have recurrent infection, they have more of a neutrophilic infiltrate, which is, again, highly refractory to inhaled corticosteroid. So to summarize a little bit of what we've talked about, what would be the workup of the severe recurrent lower airway symptoms from the standpoint of what kind of tests, what order should the physician think about ordering these tests? I think you should do a chest radiograph and an oxygen saturation. You want the oxygen saturation to be above 96%. You want the radiograph to be normal. If there is any question of comorbid allergic conditions, such as eczema or chronic nasal congestion, or gastrointestinal symptoms, allergy skin testing should be done. One can then consider a barium swallow to make sure that a vascular ring is not present. That, of course, is a very insensitive screen for gastroesophageal reflux, but if free-flowing reflux is seen, it can be helpful, although a negative upper GI surely does not rule out that diagnosis. One must then, it is to a point where, again, treatment has already been done, response is not optimal, then consider at the same time doing endoscopy, a high-resolution CT scan, and then a pH probe at the same time. When we do that at our center, we do a sweat test the same day or the day before. They have the conscious sedation. Endoscopy is done. While they're still sedated, the CT scan is done. We put the pH probe down for 12 or 24 hours, and that completes then the sort of tertiary level of the workup. Dr. Chips, thank you for being our guest this week on Hot Topics in Allergy. Thank you. You've been listening to Hot Topics in Allergy on ReachMD. This show has been presented by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For more information on the ACAAI, please visit ACAAI.org. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Allergy. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com.